Good morning. The reading today is taken from the book of Genesis. I'll be reading um, from chapter in chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, and then verse 21. If you'd like to follow along, please do so. It's on uh, page 6 of the bulletin. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and your offspring been between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. The Lord God made a garment of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Well, where in the Bible would you turn to find a Christmas story? That's a real question, right? Especially this time of year. Well, the more you read the Bible, the more you actually come to find that the entire Bible tells us about Advent, the arrival, the coming of Jesus, even the Old Testament, even the very first pages of the Bible. Well, today we're starting a new series, uh, a new sermon series called A Son is Given, focused on this Advent theme. And you're going to be hearing from different pastors from across our Grace DC network uh, are three different congregations, uh, hearing about different ways that birth stories from the Old Testament foreshadow the birth of Christ and tell us about the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, well, today our preacher, the first in this series, uh, our guest preacher is Pastor Mike Park, who is the associate pastor at Grace Downtown and also a former speed metal enthusiast. You can ask him about it later. Uh, but I uh, always love having this brother, brother uh, in our community. He's blessed us before, and so it's a joy to have him bring God's word to us uh, today. So why don't you come on up, Mike, and let's welcome our brother together. Well, good morning. So it had become tradition for me to spend first Sunday of Advent with you. I think it's been three Advents in a row now for me to be here to celebrate this weekend with you. But, uh, you know, Advent, I don't know, I think Duke said it well. It always catches me off guard. Um, it feels a bit disjointed, you know. You, you celebrate Thanksgiving and you're beginning to digest all the food you ate. And then now you got to get ready for Advent. And it's sort of like learning to drive a stick ship for the first time, you know. You brace yourself for that, uh, that rocky start, and uh, when it comes, you're always surprised. And uh, this morning, I woke up surprised that it was actually the first Sunday of Advent. 
But here we are celebrating an important season in the church as we look ahead to the coming of our Lord Christ. Just as he came, he will come again. And uh, as Duke mentioned, we are looking at various Old Testament birth narratives to sort of provide depth uh, to the birth narrative of Christ. For example, when we read Matthew 1 in light of the text that was read for us here in Genesis chapter 3, we begin to realize that this baby that is born in a manger in a small town of Bethlehem is no ordinary baby, that he is the Savior, Messiah, the conquering king who was promised from the very beginning. And he has come, not with pomp and circumstance, as we'll talk about, but as a helpless baby, humble, mild, and meek. And uh, I think the more we understand the Old Testament and the various foreshadowings of Christ and his birth, we begin to appreciate Advent all the more. And that's really our goal as we study uh, the various Old Testament birth narratives together in this Advent. Let's pray together and we'll dive in. God, we give you thanks for this day. Thank you for your grace for us. Thanks that, Lord, you're here with us. You desire to meet us, to bless us to remind us once again of the gospel, to fill our hearts with joy, with hope, with faith. And we come now asking that you would do that very work in our hearts as we come to listen. Do what only you can do, Holy Spirit, in Christ's name. Amen. Recently, I turned 42. I know it's hard to believe. Uh, I probably look like I'm 25, Um, right? No, actually, I turned 42 recently, and, uh, you know, over the past two years, I've grown in my respect for father time. Here's what I mean. In my mind, the gap between the 20-something me and the 40-something me is not significant. Sure, there are several minor details here and there, but, you know, I am the same person that I've been pretty much all my life, right? And like the popular phrase, anything I can do... Uh, Anything you can do, I can do better. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Boy, was I wrong. I've been running these days. That's mistake number one. (laughs) I don't understand you Washingtonians who love to run and you like run for miles on end. I thought, you know, what could be so hard about running? So I actually went out and started running. I don't know for those of you in your 40s exercising for the first time experienced this, but the first time I ran, my back teeth hurt. Do you understand this? You guys know what I'm talking about? Am I the only one? Thank you. I see you're not. I see you. There's no shame in this. I see you. And then I was cramping up in places I didn't realize I could cramp up. And my legs felt so heavy. I, I, I turned around. And I asked my daughter, is it just me or did gravity get stronger? I felt like I was running on Jupiter. I'm like, what happened? The point is this. The more I tried to do and be a 20-something me, the more I realize I can't do and I can't be the 20-something me. And what's true physically for me is true for all of us spiritually. Here's what I mean. 
the more I try to do and be a good person, a moral person, a spiritual person, someone that we long to be and we believe is a good thing, the more we realize we can't do and be that person we long to be. You might be here thinking, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not that bad either. Let me say, if you actually take God's command seriously, to love him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, you'll quickly realize that you cannot meet the demands of the law. This is what I call the moral gap. This gap that exists between all that is good, true, and beautiful, and the reality that you and I live in. And that gap, I think, is bigger, a lot bigger than we think. Which begs the question, was it always like this? And the Bible says no. Then what happened? What went wrong? And the Bible lays out for us a story. A story of God's redemption broken into four chapters. First chapter is creation in Genesis 1 and 2, that God created all things beautiful for us, for our enjoyment, our delight. But something went terribly wrong. Chapter 2, the fall, which we read about in Genesis chapter 3. And then, really, the bulk of the Bible spends its time in explaining God's redemptive story, his pursuit of us, his people. And it ends with a glorious ending, restoration, consummation, that one day that he who began the good work in us will come and finish it. And in the passage that we have read earlier in Genesis chapter 3, we see why the world is the way it is. And it's worse, as I said, than you and I think. But praise God that the story of God's redemption doesn't end there. It offers us real hope. So this morning, we want to look at two things quickly. First, the death of sin and the hope of promise. The death of sin and the hope of promise. Now, for those of you looking into Christian faith, you might already have big questions. As Halase was reading the passage, he might be like, wait, what is, what is all this stuff? It doesn't jive with my scientific background. My current cultural lens has no space for this sort of mythological reading. Of the, I, I don't know if I believe in this stuff, and, and I understand. And this is exactly where I was when I grew up in the church. I had a hard time believing that this really could be historical and that significant things could fall out as a result of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. And if you know anything about C.S. Lewis, a Christian author and thinker, he had a hard time with this passage as well. He said, how could this be true? How could we put so much stock in Genesis chapter 3, which sounds for the most part like a mythology? And I know you have lots of questions. And uh, hold on to all of those questions that you have. And uh, bring them next week when Duke and Yancey will be here to answer all your questions, okay? But let me just say real quickly, because a lot of theologians actually said 
in recent years that this is really not historical, but it's really just a, a fable, if you will, a mythology, a story that's told to explain the brokenness of this world. The problem with that, though, let me say real quickly before we move on to the passage, is this idea of the doctrine of original sin. Could God really punish us and condemn us to hell for all eternity and at the same time send his son, Jesus Christ, to die this horrible death on the cross because of a myth? It, something happened in the garden that really shattered God's good design. That called God to then into action. Ultimately sending his son to take our place as a substitute on the cross for us. Well, let's get back to the passage and let's see this death of sin. The pristine garden. A tailor-made habitat for Adam and Eve has been compromised. As a vice regent, Adam should have judged the serpent rather than entertaining his proposition. You see, this passage is riddled with irony. I'm sure you've heard many sermons on this, so I won't belabor the point, but let me point out just one thing. You see, in the Bible, a tree is often the place of judgment. For example, in the book of Judges, we're told that Deborah, who was a judge in Israel, she judged all of Israel under a palm tree which was named after her name, the tree of Deborah. And again, in Deuteronomy 21, we're told that curse is a man who hangs on a tree. And finally, we see the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 21 on the cross where Jesus was cursed for our sin on a tree. So Adam should have, upon encountering the serpent, condemned him and kicked him out of this, this tabernacle, right, this sanctuary, a holy place where no evil should dwell. But instead, he listened. He's entertaining the thought of what it would be like to be God. And you know how the story goes. Adam and Eve gave in to the temptation and ate from the forbidden tree. And the tenor of blessing and the pleasure and the delight of God we read in Genesis 1 and 2 change to curse and wrath of God in Genesis chapter 3. You have to read the scripture imaginatively. Here they are, Adam and Eve, listening to the pronouncement of judgment and hearing the words pain, difficulty, hardship, disappointment, and they have no category for it. What is God doing? God is explaining to them what will happen because of sin, and it is not good. All that is absolutely wrong with the world then and even now is because of sin. Theologian Cornelius Platinka once said, God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace, because it interferes with the way things are supposed to be. And we see that right here in Genesis 3. 
we see, first of all, social isolation. Sin happens, enters the world, and Adam and Eve, they not only hide from God, but they hide from each other. You see, sin always divides. It forces us out of fear or shame or guilt to build walls rather than bridges, to find comfort in our little space rather than to engage, to risk in loving the other. And then there's psychological distortion. You see, whenever our understanding of God is distorted, our understanding of self is distorted. And that leads to the distortion of the other. We have no framework to start with when our understanding of God is distorted. As theologian John Calvin once said, all knowledge begins with the knowledge of God. And when that is compromised, then everything else is tainted. And then there's emotional distress. Adam and Eve, they buy into this temptation that if they eat from this tree, they would be like God. And they take the fruit and they eat of it. And really the irony is that their eyes were indeed open just as the serpent said they would. And that they, were, they would know good and evil. And they did know good and evil. And they would be like God. Well, that's the part that didn't happen. Their eyes were open, they knew good and evil, and they knew that they were naked. What a letdown. What a letdown. They realized they were fully exposed, and for the first time, they felt guilt. They felt shame. They were afraid. They didn't know what to do. So out of desperation, they reached for something to cover themselves. Now, obviously, I wasn't in the garden to witness this, but I imagine the fig tree was pretty close by. And he's grabbed it to say, I don't know what I'm feeling, but I, I'm not comfortable. I don't like it, and I need to cover myself. And then there's vocational frustration. As someone once said, work is not curse. I know it feels like it, but work is not curse. Rather, work is cursed. And we all, because we're created in the image of God, we long to aspire for God's good design. Meaning, we want to leave a footprint here in our city, in our generation, that will, test, that will stand the test of time. That our work will impact all people for human flourishing in the years to come. It's, it's part of our DNA. It's who we are. Yet, as we see... All those efforts are now frustrated by a fallen and broken world. And lastly, there's spiritual alienation. We're cut off from God. God who is a source of joy, source of life. We are cut off from him. And no wonder now we're forced to look for joy in other things. And we're, we're forced to then find life in other things as well. All of these things add up to one thing. Death. Spiritual death. And eventually physical death. And if you read through the book of Genesis, you read through the genealogies, you realize that sin has indeed come and left the mark already. You will read the refrain, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so and died. And the author is pointing us to the anomaly called death that is now in the world. And you and I have to come face to face with this. 
This is a life outside of Eden. This is the world we live in. It's what C.S. Lewis called the Shadowlands. Not the world that it was meant to be, the beautiful, pristine garden that you and I were created for. And it certainly is not the world that will come. That's what we celebrate in Advent, that this is not the end. This is a pit stop. And you know, those rest areas, some of them are cool, but it's not our home. And we work, we do our part to live out this shalom. To bring the kingdom of God into our relationships, into our workplace. We do what we can, but we're on a journey. And our home awaits us. But in the meantime, everything we do is tainted, even our virtues. Isaiah 64, 6 says, all our righteous acts, our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. Not hope, as you're hearing this, you're feeling the weight of sin. I know we were tempted to often sort of leapfrog to the gospel to sort of apply the balm of his grace to our hearts. But I think it, it's good for us to sit in this uncomfortable place called sin and come face to face with it in order to appreciate and celebrate the gospel all the more. So I know you guys are fidgeting in your seats, but we're going to park it here a little bit longer before we round third and wrap up with the hope that we have. But here's the thing. God has not left us without a witness. You see, even in this shadowlands, a broken world, our longing testifies to the existence of God and the world that awaits us. You see, your longing, whether you would phrase it this way or not, your longing for the good, true, and the beautiful is a glimpse of your longing for ultimately God who is the good, true, and beautiful one. You see the stories of people stepping out in courage, taking the risk to love the people, especially in this very divided time that you and I live in. And something resonates in your heart, doesn't it? And you're able to affirm that, to say, that is good, that is beautiful, we need more of that. That thing in your heart that affirms the goodness in the stories and the people doing the work is ultimately your longing for God, your longing for home, your longing for Eden. And what an opportunity we have as a church. I know we talk a lot about politics in light of what happened, and rightfully so. These are difficult times, I understand, for many of you. But what an opportunity we have as a church to be church. I look out at this room, and to most of the politicians and political activists, you don't make sense. Do, do you see this? That we could come together, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, and we could put aside our differences. Not that we gloss over them and pretend that they are not who they are, but we can come together to celebrate Jesus. And that to us is the most important thing. And we, by doing that, demonstrate the kingdom has certainly come. And I hope more and more the people in this city who live in fear would come to this place and see the gospel demonstrated and find hope and find joy.
I pray that we as a church will continue to do this as we seek to demonstrate his reign and the kingdom that has come. But the gospel certainly says, yes, we are more simple than we could ever imagine. But there's the other part, that we are loved and accepted, as Pink Keller says, in Christ more than we could ever dare hope. And thank God the fall is not the end of the story. Can you imagine if the scripture ended right there in the middle of Genesis 3? Done. I don't know about you, but I, I don't know what I'd do. But we have the rest of the scripture. And even with Israel's failings, left and right, you, you, you know about this. Page after page, generation after generation, we see a God who does not relent. He does not give up, but he stays committed in fulfilling this promise to do good for his people. So let's now move on to our second point, the hope of promise. You see, in the midst of sin and death, there is light, as our candle represents. There is light, there is hope that comes in the form of a promise. Here in verse 15, as theologians say, we're given the first good news, the gospel, which then frames up the rest of the Bible. You see, the placement of the promise is worth noting. The promise does not come at a high point because then it would be a reward, a wage, something that Adam and Eve earned, but rather it comes at a low point. Adam and Eve just got caught red-handed. They probably still had the fruit in their hand. You see, they committed cosmic treason that would forever alter the course of history for all people. In fact, for all creation. Yet God quickly steps in to assess the situation, to speak words of hope, to say, I am not going to give up on you. This is not the end of your story and certainly not the end of my story. Don't we do that as parents? We hear cling, we run downstairs, we quickly assess the situation, and we speak words of condemnation. And if you could quickly catch yourself, you go, but I love you still anyway. That's us. That's at least me. But God comes, and as he's doing this, his heart is utterly broken as he understands the cost. He sees the cross casting its large shadow already in the garden. And he says, I will do this. You know what this tells me? The placement of this promise tells me that God's promise to do good is not conditioned upon our performance. His promise cannot be thwarted or foiled because or by our sin. But he will fulfill it. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 8, 39? Nothing in all creation that includes our mistakes, our shortcomings. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You know the song, Santa Claus is Coming to Town? I used to love this song until I became a Christian. And then I had an issue with this because I'm like, wait a minute, this sounds like the anti-gospel. <laughs> He's making a list and checking it twice. I'm okay with that. Going to find out who's naughty or nice. Uh-oh. 
Santa Claus is coming to town. He sees you when you're sleeping. I've always had issue with that line. Like, what the creepy? Why would you know when I'm sleeping, okay? He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why Santa Claus is coming to town. And I would say, well, Jesus is coming to town one day. And he is not making this sort of list to see who is naughty or nice. But he comes to all of us who are, in essence, all naughty. And he lavishes us with grace. And the table that we will partake in later in the service is a glimpse of that grace that is available to us. To all those who are not good, who are not deserving, if by faith we come humbly to say, God, I need you. He will open the floodgates of heaven to pour himself, not just these good blessings, but he would give himself to us. That we may delight in him. And I don't know about you, but I get excited about heaven. Not because we're going to float around from cloud to cloud playing harp. Because I don't know how to play the harp. As Duke said, I'm a thrash metal guy. You better have a Fender Strat and a distortion okay, on that harp. I don't know how you do that. But in heaven we will see glimpses of God that will leave us breathless. Every day we will see glimpses of God, new understanding of his grace. And we will stand in glory. We will fall to our face in worship. I can't wait. On the first Christmas morning, Jesus, this king that scripture spoke of in Genesis 3, came into the world as a humble and helpless baby. What a contrast. Soon we will celebrate the new president and inauguration with all the pomp and circumstance. That's not our king. He comes humbly. He chose a manger over a castle. His crown is his humility. His throne is servanthood. But this baby who came so humbly is no ordinary baby. You see, hundreds of years ago, the prophet Isaiah said, and we read this earlier, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he's got a big shoulder. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Praise God for that. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I love this, and we won't spend too much time unpacking it, but obviously it speaks to the person, the work of Christ, that he is no ordinary child, and he certainly is no ordinary king. But here at the end, it says, the zeal of the Lord will accomplish this. It was the zeal that uttered the words in Genesis chapter 3, that I will put enmity between you and the woman. He was passionate then and he is passionate now in making sure 
that this kingdom that he has brought in 2,000 years ago in a small town called Bethlehem will stretch its borders to the ends of the earth, that all those who would come will flourish like never before under his reign. And you know what? We often, we have such distorted pictures of reign. We think, is he going to be good? Is he going to be kind? But he's a servant king. If we really understand that his MO is to serve us, as we come into the kingdom that he's waiting with towel in hand to wash our feet, to serve us, I think that changes the way we think about his kingdom and how we participate in it. This king came, and long before his prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, and long before the crucifixion of the, of the cross, he secured the victory over sin and death. How? By simply showing up. You see, Jesus, his struggle in the garden was real. His pain on the cross was real. But his victory was never in doubt. The moment he showed up, it was game over. It was game over. Now, Genesis 3 uses two imageries to guarantee this. Now, we know one of them, right, that he will crush the head of the serpent. But the second and the lesser known one is in verse 14. It says, cursed are you above all livestock and all Wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. Now, this is not, as Tim Keller once said, a Hebrew mythology to explain how the snake lost its legs, okay? It's like, oh, look, snake, why does it crawl on the belly? Well, let me tell you. No, it's not that. But this phrase, eating dust, is a sign of defeat. And we use similar language even today, don't we, right? You're going to eat my dust, Lydia, my nine-year-old, she loves to run, and uh, my wife, without my consent, signed me up for a 5K to run with Lydia in a couple of weeks. And uh, obviously, Lydia, my daughter, is concerned uh, because she believes I can't run the 5K, and I am concerned too. She keeps saying, but Daddy... I never see you exercise. <laughs> well, it's because I never exercise. <laughs> How could you? So I promised her one day that I would actually go and run with her just to see how fast she is. And uh, the moment I made a promise, without hesitation, she said, you better get ready. You better get ready because you're going to eat my dust. That lit a fire in my belly. I tell you, my competitive side came out. And ever since then, okay, guess who is running three times a week? Rain or shine? Lydia, of course, okay? Because <laughs> she's going to make sure I eat her dust. So when God said to the serpent, you will eat the dust all the days of your life. Even in the garden. You see this? You see the timing of this? He doesn't wait until the resurrection to say, yeah, you will eat dust. How does that taste? No, he says in the garden, you will eat 
dust. You have been already defeated. To use a sports analogy, at this point in Genesis chapter 3, God is pointing to the scoreboard. He's saying, hey, look at the score. You ain't winning nothing. So what would his victory look like? How would this victory come? We're given a hint. In verse 7, the man and his wife sewed fig leaves to cover themselves. Now, there are a lot of things going on here. One is to cover their shame. To hide from God. And to hide from each other. In other words, they were looking for a savior to save them from their shame and fear. And they sought it in a leaf. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? But you and I, we're equally guilty, aren't we? We don't use leaves. At least I don't think we do. We use our career, our accomplishment, our relationships, so on and so forth. We turn to these things, and sometimes, knowingly and unknowingly, we say, save us. Save us. But none of these things can save us, and God knew that. So in verse 21, we read, God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Garments of skin. How do you get garments of skin? Well, you got to kill something. There was, in the garden, a blood sacrifice. Here, we're given a hint of what Christ's victory would look like. You see, years later, Jesus, the promised offspring of the woman, offered his life on the cross. And he offered himself as a blood sacrifice for us to cover our shame, to remove our guilt, and to quiet our fears so that in him we would find True, lasting, abundant salvation. And this is the good news that we celebrate. If you're looking at the Christian faith and you're like, well, what are you guys all about? I want to know what this church is all about. Well, here you have it. Every Sunday we come to celebrate and to rehearse this message, this good news that Christ the King has come. And he has offered himself and so that through his sacrifice we might find true salvation and he will one day return to finish what he started so what does it mean for us for application i want to direct our attention to page three on your bulletin here in the reflection part i think this is so well written i thought might as just read it what then is our task in this kingdom how do we Extend the borders of Eden and bring the kingdom of God into our relationships, into our workplace, and in this city. Well, here, and we will end with this. This is the calling of Christians. This is our apostolic task. The desire which should consume our soul to make this kingdom of Christ a reality. To eliminate hatred and cruelty. To spread throughout the earth the strong and soothing balm of love. Let us ask our king today to make us collaborate humbly and fervently in the divine task of mending what is broken, of saving what is lost, of fixing what man has put out of order, of bringing to this destination whatever has gone off the right road, of reconstructing the harmony of all 
created things. And this has to begin in our hearts first. We cannot commend something that we're not first convicted by. And this has to become the reality we are fighting for in our hearts. And as we live in this reality in our hearts, this is the very thing that drives us, that gets excited. Then we can turn to our co-workers in the city and say, Behold, the king has come. Let's pray together. God, we give you thanks that Christ has come, our king, and that he poured himself out so that through his sacrifice that we might find true, abundant, and lasting salvation. We praise you for that work, and we anticipate eagerly for that work to be finished. In Christ's name, amen.